two books on evolution have just come my way. One by Robin Dunbar, the well-known evolutionary psychologist, is called How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures. I think it'll get a lot of attention. The other is by an evolutionary paleobiologist, Simon Conway Morris, um, also an Oxbridge professor like Dunbar. I hope it gets lots of attention, but suspect it won't. But it's called From Extraterrestrials to Animal Minds, Six Myths of Evolution. And both, in different ways, are groundbreaking. They challenge the consensus and particularly break new ground or suggest new ways forward in relation to the scientific study of religion. Robin Dunbar's book does it in the most straightforward way. He is reviving the account of the origin of religion that can be closely associated with the sociologist Emil Durkheim, which is the idea that mystical experience, or effervescence, as Durkheim called it, is the motor for the development of religion. Dunbar has brought together a number of strands, not only in the field of evolution, but also in the study of religion. Things like how rituals work, from how the evidence of skulls links to evidence for mentalizing capacities in our ancestors, and concludes that around 200,000 years ago, or whenever modern humans first emerged, so too did a much more sophisticated and nuanced ability to engage with the mystical trance-like experiences that no, no doubt other homos had as well. And this brought enormous benefits to homo sapiens. Now, different people who study religion have said that religion has different benefits, but normally it's treating religion as a kind of noble lie or social delusion that brings benefits. For example, lessening the fear of death, or bringing in a sense of a moral deity that's good for social order. But Robin Dunbar's book is different because he is saying that religion is necessary to human evolution and it's directly of benefit to Homo sapiens. He doesn't do this by saying it opened up to Homo sapiens the existence of gods and deities, that religion is part of the toolkit that Homo sapiens that we have to test the nature of reality. He doesn't go that far. He doesn't adopt the reasons that a religious person might for following their religion, engaging in spiritual practices. But nonetheless, he does present this positive view that in itself is quite revolutionary. It's much less denigrating of religion, as if the future lies with throwing religion off. Quite the opposite. Dunbar thinks it is part and parcel of the human experience. Because it aids social bonding, it does so at one level physiologically because religious rituals, religious belonging, releases endorphins that lessen tensions in large groups 
and there's good evidence that religious bonding does this much better than parallel but secular forms of bonding. But more interestingly even than that is the sense that Dunbar has that religion expands human experience into mystical, into trance states. And that too is of great benefit for we, the creature with greater mentalizing capacities, with greater imagination and intuition. It's an account of the emergence of religiosity, starting with rituals, with animistic rites, with animistic engagement with a spiritual ecology in our deep ancestors, then developing through veneration, contact with ancestors, and the use of shamans, specialists, who could go on spiritual journeys to bring healing, to bring insight. And then finally, and most recently in the Neolithic, developing into what you might call doctrinal religion, which enables the bonding effects of religiosity to scale up really quite substantially. And so doctrinal religion, monumental building, and so on is always associated with the great civilizations. It enables scaling to go beyond, say, the few thousand, which a ritual can perform where the effervescence of attending the ritual is what brings the bonding to scaling up to many millions. His book is a grand sweep of the history of religion, not only discussing the science, which of course he knows very well with great authority, but also looking at the history of religions in terms of how different mystical practices, different trances, different rites have existed in different times and places. Um, sometimes this can be a bit surprising if you are religious. For example, he says that cannabis aroma would have filled the temple in Jerusalem. I'm sure that detail is contested. But nonetheless, there's this sense throughout that religion is being respected. So, for example, he says that whilst he himself doesn't believe in the afterlife, shamanism as a practice is coherent, does add up, and so says that it no doubt has a real psychological substrate, which is very different from just dismissing such practices as delusions which science will shake off. Now, on this account, Simon Conway Morris is very different, equally eminent in the field of evolution, but overtly able to countenance the fact that shamans might be encountering ancestors, that phenomena like telepathy could exist. He is a religious believer, and it leads him in his book, From Extraterrestrials to Animal Minds, Six Myths of Evolution, in very fascinating directions once more. Now, his myths are things like evolution has no limits, that evolution is driven by randomness, that mass extinctions are part of that randomness. Um, he deals with some mainstream controversies in the theory of evolution. But it's when he particularly gets to the notion of animal minds that he is probably going to be his most provocative if his book does reach a wider audience, but also opens up 
fascinating areas for not just the religiosity of the past, but the way it may be part of human evolution into the future. Now, he is sceptical of animal minds, not in the sense that animals aren't conscious, don't have feelings and so on, but in the sense that they're really closely comparable to human mentality. Um, Dunbar's like this, Dunbar's idea that Homo sapiens' degrees of freedom in their mentalizing really does open up dramatically new possibilities compared to, say, even Neanderthals. And Conway Morris stresses this element too. So, for example, whilst he thinks animals have feelings, he argues that they have no capacity to empathise with other animals, even their fellow animals. That what we see when we interpolate empathy is actually behaviour that no doubt has feelings attached to it, but isn't the capacity to enter into the mind of another creature and so feel alongside that other creature, um, which requires four or five degrees of freedom in mentalising, which there's no evidence that other creatures, even other homos before Homo sapiens, had. He thinks, to put it another way, that there's no sophisticated theory of mind. Um, other animals can know that they're with other conscious animals, but discussing the contents of each other's minds, relating it to the group as a whole, and then expanding that to the environment, even to gods and other spiritual entities, is not possible for other animals because that takes many degrees of freedom. So there's no, what you might call, conscious imitation and development, no play in the sense that we are able to play. But there is lots of imitation in other animals. And he sees this as really important that other animals can learn through imitation, but can't teach by understanding what's going on in a fellow trying to be taught. And so adapting what's shown in the effort to teach, which we human beings do quite routinely. And this is significant because sophisticated play, which is about conscious exploration of inner life, conscious exploration of the esoteric, conscious exploration of that which is implicit rather than explicit and empirical, is a crucial part of human culture compared to the more basic kinds of culture that other animals no doubt do exhibit. Another way of putting this is that whilst other animals can learn to use tools, they always use tools in very specific contexts. It's never possible for, say, a crow or a chimp to generalise the use of a tool. Moreover, chimps and so on may learn to use tools by accidental imitation, and certainly in captivity when they're taught to use symbols and so on. It's only after many, many, many hours with those chimps that can just never pick it up being discarded in the experiment as well. It's another way of saying that we human beings have the ability to use abstract concept, concepts, not just signs, but symbols that we can work with, and so have much greater involvement with invisible worlds, with the numinous. Again, 
there's good evidence that some animals can experience awe, but we can make something of that awe, build it into rituals, build it into symbolic systems, help it to give us meaning to life. Relatedly, Conway Morris thinks that animals don't have episodic memory, they can't time travel in their minds, um, they pick up signals but wouldn't be able to have a thought like, I buried this last year, I wonder whether it's still around. It's much more responsive to the environment when, say, a squirrel finds a nut. And so this is also to say that whilst there's some sense of numerosity, um, some sense of the more than one, there's no mathematics, there's no ability to do anything with that once again, because that requires the capacity to hold numerosity in mind abstractly and do something with it. Similarly, Conway Morrison, perhaps he's at his most controversial here, he argues that whilst plenty of animals engage in vocalisations, giving out signs, say as warnings, or singing so as to display, they don't have language and even the most basic sense because that's the ability to work with signs, with vocalisations, apart from a context, apart from an immediate need. And it's another part of Conway Morris's myths of evolution, actually. He's very clear that things appear in evolution complex already, not emergent over time. So language, he thinks, must have appeared almost fully formed, as indeed the evidence suggests, because it needs syntax, it needs grammar to be language. And so his account of evolution is much more about movement through thresholds at which new complexity appears, rather than a gradualist account of evolution. And this is where it starts to get interesting, because the minute we enter this new world of language, is the minute that a new world opens up to us that just is not conceivable before. And so Conway Morris's book is very interestingly read alongside Robin Dunbar's because it fleshes out where Robin Dunbar falls short by asking about the new worlds that opened up to us when our ancestors embarked on using trance, on exploring mystical states. And so, for example, we are able to see symmetries in the world, abstract, implicit parallelisms that, for example, are absolutely foundational in science. Newton had to be able to see the symmetry between the falling apple and the circulating moon, not at all similar at the empirical level, to understand that the law of gravity was embedded in both observations we can not only experience awe, but can discern it. And so beauty and art opens up to us. The making of objects such as ornamental axe heads in our earlier history that are arise from understanding the world from the inside out, not merely copying what already exists in the world. Making objects that aren't driven by their utility, but are driven by their symbolic function. And so a whole world of more complex ritual, a whole world of value in exchange becomes possible for us, way beyond just survival needs in the material sense. Although 
Robin Dunbar and Conway Morris, I think, would say they become part of our spiritual survival needs. We can follow the esoteric, you might say, which has practical outcomes as well, as I've talked about before in other podcasts. The notion of storage and a surplus, I think, must have been a byproduct of understanding that we live in a cosmos full of a spiritual commons that exceeds our needs and that the idea of agriculture only emerges when for the generations it takes to breed new plants the world is being explored in a more direct but mystical way. William Irving Thompson makes this very fascinating suggestion that the worship of the moon led to the domestication of cattle for example because of the sympathetic magic that was felt to exist between the shape of the cattle's horns and the phases of the moon. That was the immediate direct engagement that gradually led to cattle being coming part of human life. We can follow transcendence, this is to say, and that becomes hugely important in human society. It leads to hierarchies and symbolic leaders, ultimately kings, which of course is another crucial part of the development of larger and larger societies. But that in itself instills the possibility of perceiving divine life too, which much like the king's life and rule that is a a canopy, um, a, a space within which people symbolically live so that opens up the possibility of perceiving divine life as the the spiritual ground and envelope of our being. So this raises the question which Conway Morris touches on of you know what next what new threshold what next development of complexity might be nearby that could be quite as dramatic in terms of not just our evolution but opening up our our awareness of the cosmos as language had been 200,000 years ago or so with Homo sapiens and their advanced mentalizing capacities. And Conway Morris nods in a few directions. He nods at them first of all by also discussing the possibility of extraterrestrials Um, which he's a sceptic of, partly because he thinks that the inception of life is just not at all well understood, and so it's far too soon to be suggesting that life will be spread throughout the cosmos, for all that there are no doubt billions of planets that might be capable of sustaining life. Um, That statistical magnitude might be undercut instantly if life was very, very hard to get going. But he takes the question of extraterrestrials in a very different direction by wondering whether extraterrestrial life that was more advanced than us would advance not just on a kind of linear progress of technology, which would lead them to building spaceships that could traverse light years of distance, rather He thinks that human evolution suggests that psychological complexity and development will be the much more dramatic opening that lies before us because it lay before us before. And so the cosmos itself might be known in a completely different way. 
I mean, the parallel here that occurred to me was how in the medieval world, the planetary spheres were seen to rise into the heavens above us in one way, but within us too. Um, the heavens were understood in relational terms, which very interestingly you get nods at in terms of the quantum theory now when people are trying to understand the nature of space and time at the level of the very small as well as the very large figures like Carlo Rovelli talk about relational space and so admire Dante for drawing that kind of inference rather than the linear space um, of the Newtonian world. So if the cosmos started looking very different to us once again, say not marked by vast distance, but characterised by imaginative sympathies, traversing the cosmos might become very different as well. You might not train as an astronaut, you might train as a psychonaut, would be one way of putting it. Or you could say that transhumanizing might carry different connotations, actually much closer to those of Dante who coins the word. Transhumanizing might not mean becoming technologically enhanced, but by breaking through with capacities that are in the world around us, but we just don't see them much as our ancestors realised there were symmetries in the world around us that could only be seen through esoteric and symbolic means that required a transitional shift, a threshold to be passed in human evolution. And I just wonder whether there's intimations of this not only from the way that particularly physics seems to be reaching boundaries that need to be passed in terms of the understanding, say, of quantum theory, and relativity, but also because many people now are engaging in spiritual practices. Um, insights which once were the preserve of spiritual elites, such as non-dualism, are becoming much more widespread and people are learning to align themselves with such perceptions whilst living ordinary lives. And one would half expect that to start to make a difference. It might make a human difference in terms of the way that we can collaboratively communicate. The value of a dialogue, for example, would be seen as not just transactional, but as revelatory, as the third thing that's implicit in a dialogue becomes more and more tangible to those engaged in the dialogue. The cosmos speaks to us much as we try and speak about it. The logos is known to be informing what we say, not just being created in what we say. And then at the level of spiritual ecology too, might entities that our ancestors took for granted but didn't well understand and so try to relate to, by ritual means, entities like spirits, like demons, like angels, might we be able to converse with them more directly in the future, as perhaps a handful of forerunners did, such as Socrates, with his demon. As our intelligence becomes more agile, more nuanced, might the intelligences that are around us, intelligences that are present, alive, shaping, 
communicable at different levels of reality, filling out the spiritual ecology that sometimes gets lost in monotheism with its direct focus on the one. Could a threshold be approaching? Simon Conway Morris certainly keeps open to the possibility that there are new thresholds ahead which are signalled by the seeming boundaries of our perceptual capacities now. And so it's a fascinating moment with these two books that both are open to mystical experience having value in its own sake. Robin Dunmore undoubtedly developing that mostly in the direction of utility, but so as not to dismiss it. Simon Conway Morris nudging towards a much more dramatically different account of evolution. He knows about traditional evolution. He is one of the star developers of Darwinian theory, but stays open to the possibility that it could develop in unexpected and seeming to us very dramatic ways.